Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, Houthi rebels in Yemen are continuing strikes on cargo vessels in the Red Sea, ostensibly in response to the war in Gaza. As the UK and US hit back, we look at the justifications for action and the dangers of escalation. Plus, while Rishi Sunak rails against a fake war on motorists, public transport is in crisis across the country. How could Labour fix it? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, in a world where so many dream holiday destinations are run by corrupt and bigoted governments, we attempt an ethical travel guide for the new year. But before all that, we have two big news stories to tuck into. So let's meet the panel straight away. Roz Taylor is the host of Jam Tomorrow and the author of The Future of Trust, out next month. Hello, Roz. Hello, Dorian. So Grunewald is the brand new politics correspondent at The Independent. Hello and congratulations, Zoe. Thank you, Dorian. I think I got a congratulations on the last podcast as well. So it's nice. You're just, just constantly being congratulated. Yeah. <laughs> it's like people say Happy New Year in the middle of February. Yeah. Our guest this week is Simon Calder, an award-winning travel journalist, author and broadcaster who is recognised as Britain's leading travel commentator. He once won Celebrity Mastermind with Concord as his specialist subject and currently writes for Zoe's new home, The Independent. Hello, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Great pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've been here slightly longer than Zoe. I'm in my 30th year. <laughs> yes, I was very young when I started. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, let's get started on two big news stories this week. The Commons vote on the third reading of the Rwanda bill a few hours after we record, which is annoying and inconsiderate. But we have some pre-match drama to discuss. Lee Anderson and Brendan Clark-Smith, the lovable deputy chairs of the Tory party, resigned on Tuesday after leading a 60-strong right-wing rebellion to vote for tougher amendments, which was backed by newspaper columnist Boris Johnson. Zoe. Uh, it says at least 29 rebels will be needed to defeat the bill, but probably because of the likely behaviour of other MPs, probably as many as 50. Does that seem plausible? And if not, does that make the gruesome twosome look foolish? So I expect not. I think it will pass. Although just as I was walking into the studio, there was all sorts of wrangling on Twitter about Suella Braverman meeting, you know, Robert Jenrick. And uh, so, yeah. uh, but there is a, you know, there is a thing in Westminster, a political uh, reporters getting very, very excited about seeing two people meeting in uh, Paul Cullis' house and getting a bit carried away. So uh, I think, I suspect it will pass. Um, but the question of whether it damages Sunak, I mean, I think it does. It, this is the only policy the government really have that they talk yeah, yeah. about over and over again. And to have such open division, warfare in their own party about something which they all broadly agree on, by the way, but the mm. details of how to do it. It just shows a very dis divided government. And, you know, if you can't even get your flag flagship policy through without um, debate or very public fighting, then I think it just shows that they really are out of ideas. And being cynical for a moment, um, resignations like this are often about... Um one's own political career, making certain statements, positioning yourself. 
What's up with these two? It's a good question. Um, I think Lee Anderson and Brendan Clarksmith um, have been doing quite a bit of posturing for some time. Um, clearly, they don't really agree with the leadership of the party, but they're also very keen to be on the inside to kind of raise their profile. Now, they're probably both likely to to lose their seats at the next election or at least have some heavy damage there. Um, but, you know, they've Lee Anderson's got his GB News slot. I think it's all about building their profile, maybe hoping for something, you know, sometime in the future. Does the resignation make them look foolish? Does it bolster their position? I suspect it doesn't bolster their position in their constituency. Um, I think it maybe makes them a bit of a figurehead, but we've got so many figureheads on the right of the party now that um, it's quite a crowded market. So uh, they've lost their their positions in the party. Um, They've raised their profile slightly. That's probably the extent of it. Uh, so we've done the soap opera. Now let's do the policy. Damien Green, one of the few moderate Tories who actually says anything, um, said the rebels are betraying Tory values with authoritarian amendments. Now, those amendments were defeated by Labour. There were more amendments today. What did these ones consist of? So the, the, the main thrust of the amendments, and there's sort of two groups of amendments. The first is from the right wing uh, of the party, the rebels, who basically want to disapply uh, the Human Rights Act. So it would mean that... Um, uh, refugees, asylum seekers can't make human rights challenges and neither can the courts. Um, And basically strengthening the government's ability to send um, asylum seekers to Rwanda in spite of opposition Mm. about whether Rwanda's safe. And then the other side of it is the one nation side where they are very keen to see that we do adhere to our international obligations and so do Rwanda. So they want to clarify that a safe country um, is a country that basically sits within those international obligations and the Human Rights Act. As I think you've gathered, these two things are really in opposition to each other. You can't have, we don't care about the human rights obligations we're under and uh, Rwanda and the UK must abide by them. So that's why we've got this real, uh, we've got the party really at loggerheads here over what this means. And actually, this is really a battle for the future of the Conservative Party as well. Where do we sit in in the world? Mm. You know, are we international leaders? Are we insular? Are we setting an example? Yeah, you've got David Cameron back as foreign secretary. I mean, he very much comes from that one nation, uh, world leading perspective. But actually, Sunak is very much caught in the middle of the right wing rebels. And the I guess what you would say used to be at least the heart of the Conservative Party. Now it's off to America in a metaphorical concord, where the 2024 election has officially begun. Donald Trump swept the Iowa caucuses with 51% of the vote, trailed by Ron DeSantis on 21, Nikki Haley on 20, and stunt candidate Vivek Ramaswamy on 8. He then dropped out, uh, having raised his profile and basically done the job. This confirms what we already knew. Unless lightning strikes, Donald Trump will be facing Joe Biden again in November. Now, Roz, it is on the face of it a decisive victory, but some commentators are arguing that Trump is effectively running as the Republican incumbent. Um, He sort of thinks he's the incumbent president. So half the vote from a low turnout means that he's weaker than he looks. What do you think? It's hard to read too much into the turnout chiefly because the weather in Iowa is bloody freezing. Oh, oh, it makes it feel quite summery here, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's lower than minus 20. So people who made it to the polls really, really wanted to go to the polls. Now, you know, that may work either way for Trump. It may be people who feel that it's very important that Trump doesn't become the next president or people who feel very powerfully that he does. So it's it's difficult to, to uh, judge too much from that. It's interesting because Iowa 
is obviously quite a conservative state and it's always the first one to go, but it's not actually a very good guide to who gets the eventual Republican nomination. New Hampshire which is, of course, the next one, is a much more reliable guide to to who will actually pick it up. Nikki Haley has a great uh, deal more appeal in New Hampshire than she had in Iowa. And it may well be that she does considerably better there than she has in Iowa, where she came in third, just third, because Ron DeSantis didn't do... But uh, surely not well enough, though, because around 60% of registered Republicans believe that Trump actually won the 2020 election and that he should be president even if convicted of crimes. Yeah. That doesn't sort of speak well for um, Nikki Haley's chances. Yeah, it's hard to be optimistic. But as I say, New Hampshire is a different proposition. It's got much more um, college educated electorate, different. And if she does manage to pick up momentum and if Trump literally or metaphorically stumbles and yeah, it still could still happen. The guy's not looking well. He's he appears to be limping. Um, he's got some nasty red blotches on his hands, which no one seems mm. quite able to explain. You know, he's now seventy-seven. Um, it's, it is quite possible that he could implode physically. <laughs> never mind the problem, the legal problems that he's got. So that is probably what Nikki Haley will be hoping. What I found remarkable was his victory speech, or at least the clip that was played in the radio, because apparently mm. went on for some time, um, where he made a call for national unity and bringing <laughs> Republicans and Democrats together, which um, for people who follow uh, his posts on Truth Social, uh, where he's constantly <laughs> promising to crush his enemies and destroy the Marxists who are undermining America, mm. um, actually made me laugh out loud. Yeah, I watched that speech. Um, I watched it all the way through because I find Trump a very interesting speaker. I mean, repellent, obviously, but interesting. Because what he does, he always prefaces his worst stuff by saying something entirely reasonable. So in this one, he started out by saying, you know, I don't want to be overly rough on, on Joe Biden. And then he goes on and says that Biden <laughs> is the worst president that the US yeah. has yeah, yeah. ever had. And then he will uh, he, he went into a long digression on Ukraine and how sad it was that Ukraine had been bombed and it was lamentable and so on. And then he went into something about uh, how he was close to Putin. And I mean, the speech, the speech was not what you would call conciliatory. I mean, he also had a, a rant about how people from insane asylums were uh, in countries that most people had never heard of were uh, arriving in America. It was it, it was the usual. It, there, there were a couple of, as you say, conciliatory lines, but that was not the main content of what was going on. If I might just chip in here, um, interesting from a travel point of view, of course, these uh, wonderful locations for the primaries. Um, Iowa is where Bill Bryson, the marvellous travel writer, comes from. And just to put it in context, um, it, he uh, uh, writes, um, outside Des Moines, the capital, there's a big sign that says, welcome to Des Moines. This is what death is like. <laughs> um, and New Hampshire, actually, in contrast, is a very beautiful state uh, in New England, of course, ideal in September, October when you've got the leaf fall. And even uh, when you haven't, you've also got a large uh, um, town called Concord, well worth visiting. And the White Mountain, uh, I think state or might be National Park in the north. So, um, yes, you could do a tour of um, of, of the primary states. But not in January when the primaries <laughs> no, are. That's intolerable. Exactly, yes. Ros, finally, in, in our planning meeting, um, we do actually plan these episodes. Um, <laughs> you were quite cross with Joe Biden over this. Yeah, I'm Why? quite cross with Joe Biden. I, I think, you know, we've got to the stage now when he's, he's going to get the Democratic nom nomination unless there's a medical emergency or something like that. 
He thinks he's the only Democrat who can beat Trump. He's on a mission now mm. and he thinks that he's the only one who can do it. I think he's mistaken about that. Um, but he's. You think he can't beat Trump, or you think that there are other Democrats? I think that could there are other it? Democrats who could have, who could, who are capable of beating, beating Trump. But of course, they have not been allowed really to put themselves forward in any meaningful way because the party defers to Biden's authority, as is traditional with a sitting president. Yeah. And I get that, but he could, you know, he could have cultivated younger people. He's got a vice president who is even more unpopular than he is and that puts it, that is particularly important because of his age um, and I just wish that the, given the stakes are so very high this time, I mean, he might have thought in the past, so Trump won't, you know, he'll implode or he won't get the uh, Republican nomination. Now it looks like he will and the, uh, the stakes are so high and his popular unpopularity is such that he should have stood aside, I think, for another candidate. Well, here's my optimistic retort. Um, a lot of people don't follow the news. And the argument has been made that actually a lot of people, they kind of didn't really sort of feel in their gut that Trump was going to be running again, that that was a serious prospect. All the mm. politics watchers knew that. Mm. Um, but a lot of voters didn't. And the, the reason that the polls have been... Not so good for Biden. I'm not talking approval rating, but like head-to-head -head polls, is because people were sort of more venting their irritation with various things, whether that be policy on you know Israel and Gaza, or whether it be the economy, um, which, as we discussed before, is actually doing quite well, but a lot of people don't uh, believe that it is, and that now the election has really started, that it's actually going to galvanise a lot of people in their their dislike of um, Donald Trump is going to outweigh their disappointment with Biden. And that the more we see of Trump, who, let's face it, hasn't even bothered to turn up to these debates because he didn't have to, um, the more his uh, esoteric rhetorical style is on display, the more he says things like, congratulate me for overturning Roe v. Wade. I did that. That was a really good thing. The better it is for Biden. So that as we move through the year, it is the polls are likely to look rather better. Mm. Not, I, I would like to believe that, but also I do actually believe that, not being complacent about it. But I do feel like that maybe this is the point at which we start seeing more, Americans start seeing more of Trump and going, oh, that I didn't enjoy that. I hope, I hope you're right. And I've been having very similar conversations. Let's call them conversations with my husband on this subject. <laughs> he more or less shares your view much more closely. But I, I, I do worry a lot. That uh, that the somehow, and I don't understand quite why the good economic news is not sinking in mm. in the U.S. and particularly if inflation does hold up for longer than we expect or goes up again. If I might just bring in another travel aspect here, I was at World Travel Market, this huge event in uh, London, on the day, the morning after the American presidential election, um, when the entire U.S. Um, delegation were just in shock. They couldn't believe it. They were sure that people would simply say, well, I'm not going anywhere near the US for the next four years. And of course, we all happily did and uh, uh, were welcomed in by those friendly, smiling immigration people and a big picture of Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm quite glad that my uh, the, the world of music journalism collapsed around that time and so that I was no longer being sent regularly to America and didn't have to see his smiling face.
Do you have any advance warning on when the world of travel journalism is going to collapse? Just so I can... People will always like travel, Simon. You're safe. <laughs> give us another pandemic. It won't take long, Simon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, we didn't mention that. <laughs> Sorry. Next up, Yemen's Houthi rebels continue to fire at international shipping lanes in the Red Sea in a campaign they began last year uh, in apparent support of Gaza, although many of the targeted vessels have no connection to Israel. The UK and US have retaliated with strikes on Houthi missile bases. So far, casualties have been uh, zero to low on both sides. Yemen has been embroiled in civil war for the last 10 years, with the Shia Houthis backed by Iran, rebelling against the internationally recognised Sunni government supported by Saudi Arabia. The conflict has killed over 300,000 people, although a ceasefire is held since April 2022, and Saudi Arabia is currently seeking a peace agreement between the factions. Roz, how much do you think most people understand about the situation in Yemen, given that this has been, you know, an enormously brutal and devastating civil war that's gone on for a decade? Yeah, I mean, very little. I think we we can all we can all accept that. And I don't really blame them. I mean, it's uh, it's extremely complicated region with alliances between different powers that are constantly fluctuating. It's a bit more complicated than the very simple version <laughs> I just yeah. gave, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's obviously a lot more complicated than just uh, Israel Palestine, which is what we've been hearing about for the past few months, of course. Um, there were people on the pro-Palestinian march in London on Saturday who were actually urging Yemen to attack uh, ship to attack Western ships, and that was, you know, that's that's obviously a minority. And clearly, those people don't know much about the civil war in Yemen, and they don't realise that the Houthis are not the same as Yemen. Well, the slogan, some of them using the slogan "Yemen do is proud," and it's like, well, yeah. which Yemen? Yeah, that's the point yeah. of a civil war. Because the Houthis do control some of Yemen, but mm. not all of it. And uh, I think the government hasn't really or didn't really roll the pitch enough before it joined in this US military action. Now, admittedly, our our involvement in these airstrikes was relatively minimal, but we were the only country that joined the US in bombing the Houthis. It's an important decision. And, you know, while you need an element of surprise for an attack, and I can understand why they wouldn't have set out their plans too much in advance, but when you're not going to debate it in Parliament and... You, you you have a duty, I think, to explain the rationale and why mm. you're doing that. And it all felt a bit post hoc. Mm. It all felt like, oh, we've we've bombed this and this is why we did it, which is I don't think the way that it it should be in a in a, in a democracy where we where we uh, have a chance to to debate these things. Well, Zoe. Lib Dems, SNP and Plaid Cymru were all arguing that, you know, any kind of military intervention, um, not legally, but conventionally requires parliamentary debate. As Ros said, the response is like, well, we, you, you didn't want to tell the Houthis you were about to do it. Um, you know, do you think that that's a sort of valid reason? Um, and was there, a, was there a better way of handling it, even if you didn't want to lose the element of surprise? Well, I think Ros is spot on, actually. I think... Absolutely, it's the case that um, the decision to deploy armed force is a prerogative power. So that means it's exercised by the prime minister on behalf of the crown and you don't necessarily have to consult parliament. Uh, And it is true that in the past, prime ministers have 
often consulted and informed Parliament prior to almost as a matter of, of courtesy and to ensure that the public are aware of, of what's going on as well. Um, and also, you know, there's a reason that MPs are there. They aren't just there to sanction things or, or say no to things. They're also there to offer alternatives, to mm. consult with the government. They're there to be a moderating force in many ways. The government isn't under any constitutional obligation to do that. And I think Sunak and his spokesperson and the MOD have all set out a rational for why they wouldn't have wanted to necessarily necessarily make that um, approach public. But I do think this was just almost like an entirely new bit of the sort of conflict in the Middle East that cropped up for many people. Um, there was a story, I think, on the front page of The Telegraph. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it was a Telegraph a couple of weeks ago that Grant Shapps had issued a warning to the Houthis saying, you know, we will have to take military action if you continue to disrupt shipping in the Red Sea. Um, but that was it. And it wasn't really talked about. And it just sort of very gently made its way up the news agenda. Then suddenly, oh, here we are embroiled in mm. another conflict. And I think that's quite alarming for people, for the public who are already concerned about military action in, in Gaza, who are concerned about, you know, the escalation in Iran, uh, Lebanon, all those kind of um, different elements of this conflict. And then to hear that we're taking action in in this particular um, region as well, I think is quite concerning. I suppose the weird thing about it is it's somewhere between, um, it's not quite a war, it's somewhere between like a war and a sort of almost like a police action, like a police raid. Mm. Like as in you wouldn't announce in advance that you're going to like, you know, raid a drug ring or whatever. And I suppose mm. what they're doing here is, is they're, 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 it's targeted against pirates, but because of the whole political context, it's not entirely just like law enforcement. Yeah. It does feel a bit warlike. It's another sort of proxy war or, or side of that kind of proxy war, isn't it? Um, you're right. I mean, it's not direct sort of warfare. It's it's enforcement. It's um, defence. It's like an entirely different kind of thing. And you're right, it's, it's, you know, action against piracy as well. So there's definitely a security angle to it. And there is a, I think, a rationale for not bringing it up in Parliament. Um, but I think the, the point about informing the public in some way or educating mm. them about the conflict um, in the Middle East and exactly what it means by having our shipping routes disrupted is important too. Right. Yeah, I, I would just like to uh, point out what's happening geopolitically in terms of tourism as well, because um, there was an extraordinary response once we learnt that there were attacks by the US and the UK mm. um, on uh, Houthi positions in the Red Sea, or because of the Red Sea, suddenly I got a whole lot of people contacting me on social media saying, I'm going to Egypt, I'm going to the Red Sea, can I cancel? Because frankly, I don't want to be caught up right. in uh, mm -hmm. uh, this attack, and which is completely understandable. I mean, the wonderful Red Sea beaches of Haggadah, of Sharm el Sheikh, of the whole Sinai Peninsula. Fortunately, about a thousand miles away, <laughs> but it shows you just how people respond. And there, there has been a serious downturn in both Egypt and indeed in Jordan this year, mostly actually with Americans staying away. So the big tour groups who would normally be in, in January seeing the Nile, exploring Petra in Jordan and so on, they're simply not coming. Great time to go to these places. But of course, um, you've, you've got to the north, the terrible Israel-Gaza crisis, and now um, the Red Sea getting lots of very bad press. Well, a couple of years ago, you joined hordes of sun seekers and clubbers by visiting Yemen. 
Yes. Um, <laughs> how was that? Oh, it, it was spectacular until the point where we got airlifted out. Um, but that was entirely because nothing to do with the Houthis, nothing to do with um, political struggles. This was entirely due to, and I'm going to mention it again, the pandemic. Um, it was, I, I should have learned actually. So I was on the beautiful island of Socotra, which I take it from me, 30 years from now, will be one of those places in the Indian Ocean, which people will pay an absolute fortune to stay in beautiful eco-lodges. It is utterly charming, utterly beautiful, completely unspoiled on the grounds that it's very difficult and expensive to get to, um, especially if there's a pandemic on. So I've been into Saudi Arabia to test out the new tourist visas. My flight to Cairo got cancelled because of the pandemic. I thought it's not really going to be a pandemic. I've seen all those scares before. So I got a bus to the Jordanian border. I paid a fixer $20 to get me across into uh, Aqaba in Jordan. I then hitchhiked across Israel to um, the uh, Egyptian border and then uh, finally got to Sharm el-Sheikh and flew up to uh, Cairo and got my flight with an hour to spare. And then obviously got there, had a wonderful five days and then uh, suddenly they woke us up in our tents in the middle of the night and said, right, you've got to go to the airport now or you're going to be here for a number of months. So who was in charge of the bit of Yemen that you were in there? Well, is that Houthi or the uh, uh, government? Uh, no, but it, it, th this island is, is, is kind of on its own and is the subject of a, a squabble, but a good squabble, between various warring factions. So you've got, um, for instance, the UAE putting in loads of money. I, um, uh, while hiking, I uh, suffered an injury. I needed stitches. I got taken to a hospital where you would be so thrilled if you went to A&E and got the immediate, very good treatment um, like that. It was quite extraordinary. And that's because the UAE have, have pumped in loads of money. And it's, it's Socotra is sort of seen as a place on its own. Certainly no threats or anything, just some wreckage of um, Soviet um, uh, materiel um, for, from one some godforsaken attack or when they were mm. using it as a proxy for something or other. Oh. But a very peaceful place. I strongly recommend you go there, but not during a pandemic. Not, <laughs> or, or, or indeed now. <laughs> <laughs> Roz, the Houthis, um, whose slogan, uh, it's quite a long slogan, but includes the words death to Israel, a curse on the Jews, claim to be targeting ships of any nationality heading to the Zionist entity. But many other ships have been attacked. Uh, they were not on their way to Israel. Um, and there's evidence the preparations for these attacks began weeks before October the 7th. So is there another motive? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's been useful to uh, ally themselves with the Palestinians because there's been a great deal of outrage in the Arab world at the bombing of Gaza and what it has done. And a sense too that Arab nations are not stepping up to defend fellow Muslims. Mm. So this is a useful way of uh, distinguishing themselves as well and saying that we we guys, are, we guys have got your back, even though, of course, you know, they, really, they really haven't. Um, and perhaps there's a sense too that the West uses... The Red Sea is a convenient shipping route between China and the Far East and Europe, but it sees most of the people living in the region as expendable. I think there's probably that lying, lying behind it as well. And no doubt the chaos in the Suez Canal when the ever-given ship got stuck, mm. you may remember, early in 2023 and nothing could pass for quite some time, <laughs> might have given them some ideas for how to, <laughs> how to disrupt shipping. But it's also uh, given them, the Houthis, you know, just more clout, more power in their talks with Saudi Arabia. 
which is really hoping to get to get shot of, as it were, of the Yemen war, and which the Houthis, you know, the Houthis would love to take over the whole of Yemen and for that to happen. So it's a, it's a strategic move, basically. So we're used to humanitarian justifications for military action in the Middle East. Um, some, not time to get into it now, some haven't gone so well. This is explicitly <laughs> about protecting trade. Yeah. Um, which some people interpret as a rather sort of grubby reason. But what are the consequences of disrupting Red Sea shipping, like for ordinary people? I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty massive. They just haven't really shown up yet because they, the extra costs that it entails take a while to filter through. So if you divert shipping, the only place you can divert shipping to to avoid this narrow strait that the Houthis are attacking ships in is via South Africa, right, mm. around there, which adds... Um, a, a huge amount of extra distance. It's and it uses up an extra million dollars in fuel costs for every journey that one of these massive super tankers take, and also the insurance costs go up as well. Uh, not just if the trip is longer, but if you are going through the strait, the insurance uh, costs are rocketing because of the risk that your ship will be atta- attacked. You have to pay the crew more because no one's going to want to sh- <laughs> be the be on a ship that uh, might well be you know attacked or taken over by pirates, and so you've got to. Up their up their wages, and in all this uh, is is going to increase is already increasing the cost of shipping goods like this, and that is inevitably going to be passed on. And uh, quite a lot of the stuff that's shipped is oil and gas as well, and of course that's something to which Western countries are particularly sensitive. Mm-hmm. So, so far, the Houthis haven't yet sunk a ship or killed any crew members. The US, um, UK have targeted weapons, um, not civilians. Everybody is saying we're not looking for regional conflict. This is a very limited thing to protect, you know, um, the rule of law and freedom of navigation and so on. It might escalate. Zoe, how is new Foreign Secretary David Cameron handling himself on this? I think he's handling himself rather well in terms of optics. I think when Cameron came back, people thought the adults are back in the room. And that maybe isn't so much a praise of David Cameron, more a testimony to what the Conservative government have been like over the past few years. Um, But he does have this statesman-like quality to him, which I think is very helpful for the role of Foreign Secretary, because this is the person you're going to be putting out most um, in front of diplomats, Mm. in front of some of our our sort of fiercest allies and um, some of the people we perhaps don't have the greatest relationship with. So, And obviously, he's a very experienced statesman. He was Prime Minister. So in terms of all that, I think he's doing right. Well, I did well. flinch when you said that Grant Chaps had sent a warning to the Houthis. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, I could probably I can see, see why it. they didn't back down, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think um, David Cameron does do rather well. One of the problems, obviously, is that he is mainly accountable in the House of Lords. So he did some, uh, he answered some questions in the House of Lords just yesterday. And that doesn't get very much pickup in the same way as if he was in the House of Commons answering those questions. So that's a bit frustrating in terms of the public and MPs being able to scrutinise what he's doing. Um, he was obviously on uh, on the airwaves on on Sunday, speaking to Laura Koonsberg. Um, I think more attention was paid to his uh, lobbying involvement rather than his kind of mm. um, diplomacy. But I think he he takes the line that everyone would expect him to take on on conflict in the Middle East. Um, he did say he was um, concerned about whether Israel had abided by international law, um, but still kind of backed the the party line on that. You'd expect him to take a, an approach that's very similar to the US and to just abide by that. And I think that's what he's doing. Um, 
is the military action that we're taking in the Middle East going to help? Uh, I mean, I think ultimately this looks like it's just escalating further and further every day. You know, when you've got the Houthis, who are obviously backed by Iran, um, being, you know, sort of taking this provocative action in the Red Sea, you do worry about what's going to happen and how things are going to, you know, worsen. So um, I think David Cameron does as much as he can do in terms of being a very competent kind of statesman, but whether uh, the UK is actually going to do anything consequential in this space, mm. I think is a different question. I did kind of relate when when I, I saw a quote from Cameron, I can't remember in which context, where he just went, this is a really like dangerous time. I don't know whether this is just him trying to say, actually, my job is very hard. But I thought, yeah, no, he's he's not wrong. Yeah, yeah it makes me relieved that Boris Johnson is not currently Foreign Secretary. Mm. It's ugh, looking back, yeah, that was one of Theresa May's more bizarre decisions, wasn't yeah, it? I, 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 yeah, yeah, wasn't someone trying to banter the Houthis <laughs> into submission. Yeah. It's also not just what's going on right now, it's what other countries are going to look at the sort of mess in the Middle East and look at our involvement mm. in Ukraine and think, oh, now might be quite a good time to kind of be a bit provocative. And of course, China and Taiwan is always flashing on red on the government's dashboard in the background. And there are concerns, obviously, that that could escalate over the next five years. And I think Grant Shapp, sorry to bring him back up, made a uh, speech earlier in the week about, you know, there are plenty of other fronts um, of conflict that could be fought across the world and we need to be prepared for them. So, yeah, I'm not sure David Cameron is getting all eight hours of sleep at night, but... (laughs) He's enjoying himself. Yeah. Next this week, if you're listening to this on a train and you're actually going to arrive at your destination on time, you are statistically among the lucky ones. In the first half of last year, 44% of all rail services in Britain were delayed or cancelled. Last year, the network was hit by strikes, a fare increase well above inflation, the news that Rishi Sunak was cancelling the remainder of HS2, but good news, spending some of the money on roads in London. (laughs) How messed up is the UK's transport system and what could a Labour government do about it? Simon Calder is our expert. Where there's would you lot, like me to there's start? There's a lot to cover. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm going to start with this. I actually can't remember a time without delays, cancellations and fare hikes on the railways and travel chaos headlines. Is there a systemic problem here that can't be pinned on one government or policy? Or does, it all, does it all sort of stem from, uh, you know, one particularly bad decision? Uh, look, the offensive government after government, and I'm most certainly including the Blair Brown governments in this, has been negligence. Um, they have actually, over the past 25 years or so, presided uh, until COVID, presided over a rapidly growing rail system in terms of passenger numbers. Now, how much of that is simply because it's so awful on the roads? How much is naturally a product of um, gradual economic growth? It's difficult to tell. But things have happened despite governments. Now, we are in an entirely different situation where everything is um, everything is simply decided, it seems, by number 10 on the grounds of um, what is most politically expedient for us. And that means cancelling outrageously the Manchester leg of HS2. But also it means this absolutely miserable situation for 
any rail passenger, including me, I don't have a car, there's 20 million British people who don't have access to a car, where you can't plan anything more than two weeks ahead because we're now in the third calendar year of strikes, um, which is something in my many, many decades of travelling, covering this industry, we have never seen before. And that's basically because... Actually, the train drivers union are perfectly happy to carry on striking. They've got more of uh, nine days of industrial action designed to cause maximum disruption, of course, as any union would do with minimum loss of pay. That's coming up from the 29th of uh, uh, January going through to the uh, 6th of February in order to just remind everybody that they are there and their demands have not gone away. And speaking to Mick Whelan, the general secretary of Aslev, he says, yeah, we're just waiting for a change of government, but we're just kind of prodding away making sure people really? know we're here. And that is just one tiny part of the misery of the rail system. There is a lack of infrastructure. So that, for example, on the day we're speaking today on a very cold day, so I thought I'd see what the damage was caused by that. And in Scotland, of course, you've got uh, um, Perth to Inverness. That's all, all suspended. But then you just see, oh, OK, there's a broken third rail at Vauxhall. Um, we've got a points failure somewhere else. We've got signal failures on, on Great Western. All manner of problems which are, are, are absolutely relentless. They seem to be increasing. And furthermore, on top of that, you've got staff shortage, which the unions will say, this is outrageous. It's entirely down to um, uh, the uh, money-making train operators for fail, failing to tra train enough people. Um, but in fact, it's all just part of the national misery and a reflection of absolutely toxic industrial relations. I've never known it so bad. And I'm Honestly, an optimism optimist because um, travel is supposed to be the industry of human happiness. Well, you've called Sunak the most anti-rail prime minister ever. Is that is that predominantly because of HS two decision, or do you just uh, sense it generally? I don't I don't know whether he gets on the train much. Oh no, he doesn't. I mean, he's got total disdain for for, for trains. Yeah, there was a photo opportunity in a pharmacy in Southampton. Now he would need to go across the river from Downing Street. Um, that would take five minutes to Waterloo. It would take an hour and 15 minutes to Southampton. But how much more convenient um, it is to get a helicopter to Southampton. Um, and obviously, the, the, yeah, this, is, this is a tradition which Liz Truss, I think, um, got absolutely to perfection when she um, decided that, no, she wasn't going to fly on Qantas, which had perfectly good scheduled flights to do exactly her itinerary in Australia. She was going to fly a... Uh, an Airbus A321, with which normally has 235 seats on. She was going to fly it with a handful of uh, advisors to and around Australia and back. Um, it cost us half a million pounds, but hey, why not? Um, it, 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 this, there, there is simply no appetite for rail, which is why we are now going into, um, or indeed are quite a way along, a, a spiral of decline, which means that you cut back on services because, um, well, frankly, rail revenue is so terrible. And so people, fewer people travel by train. Mm. They haven't got any certainty, any resilience. And so it's, uh, it is absolutely miserable. I think that's a very good analysis. I mean, I think one of the things that people love to say about Sunak is that he's out of touch. And a really easy thing he could do, because it's, a, it's, a it's something that's levied against him all the time, and I actually think it really cuts through as a criticism. One of the simplest things he could do is stop using that private jet, but he just seems to be... It's that Sorry, the helicopter and the private jet, but he just seems to be addicted to it. And I think you're right, the only possible explanation is that he's just incredibly anti-rail. He feels it's inefficient, it doesn't work for him. Um, 
which is so out of touch with how most people have to operate. I saw a photo of him on a bus once, though, talking to an old lady. So I know that he stepped on a bus. Mm. Yeah, but the yes, one that's become I a meme. That photo. Yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> where he seems to be shouting at her. Um, Simon, I'm interested to know what you know about Labour's transport policy so far. Um, because <laughs> I was interested to know what you knew, frankly. <laughs> well, um, I mean, there's not, we, we do know that they have refused to say whether they'd reinstate HS2, and basically it sounds like a no because there's not enough money, basically, which seems to be behind a lot of Labour's lack of policy at the minute. Do you know anything more? Well, it all depends who you listen to. Um, so we've got the uh, Lu- uh, Louise Haig, who's the Shadow Transport Secretary. We have um, Stephen Morgan, the Shadow Rail Minister. And we've got various other people who are saying things such as, yes, we are going to reinstate HS2 in full, including the bit to Leeds, and we're going to build Northern Powerhouse Rail in in full, and then they get um, slightly shut down. Um, <laughs> not to extend HS2 at least to crew would be almost as much of an act of criminal damage as, as Sunak has already done, because actually the benefit cost analysis for that stretch of railway, taking the strain off the uh, West Coast mainline and properly connecting the Midlands with uh, the Northwest was actually the, the, the main benefit. And actually, you also need the line up to Leeds in order to make the whole thing coherent. At the moment, we will have maybe in 10 years, a shuttle that runs between um, this very, very bleak old Oak Commons station <laughs> in West London um, and um, Curzon Street in Birmingham. It, it, and as you will have read. Under the current plans, there would be fewer seats to and from Manchester and the journey would take longer than it does at the moment. Um, but this but is apart all... apart from that... Apart from <laughs> that, and that is, that is simply Sunak um, suddenly deciding, OK, there's the, the, electorally, we need to get the motorists on side and quite right in terms of numbers, an awful lot more people drive than, than take trains regularly. But in terms of Labour's policy, I mean, it's one of these many things where it's much easier to be heckling um, Andy Burnham, a brilliant operator in terms of every time there's a crisis, he will he will um, score political points from it very effectively. Um, and it's, it's, as with education, as with the NHS, it's actually much easier being in opposition than having to sort things out. So what do we know? Well, um, they are going to, and we, we've got a very recent uh, tweet from Stephen Morgan, the Royal Minister, saying that, yes, they are going to bring all the train operators into public ownership as contracts expire, which could actually take a decade or so. But it's as though, and this is the rhetoric of the unions as well, uh, ASLEF and the RMT, they say, well, if only you didn't give billions of pounds to all these private companies, everything would be fine. Slightly ignoring the fact that more and more of the uh, railway is in private, in public ownership. So LNER, Southeastern, mm-hmm. Transpennine Express, Northern, and um, it's you know, your your call about how whether um, being in public ownership has helped the train companies, which are privately owned, uh, effectively everything they do is stipulated by the Department for Transport, and they get a two percent. Uh, fee for it. So that's effectively outsourcing. And it's not going to make uh, much difference at all. It is simply a good 
it's something which um, which polls well, saying you're going to renationalise the railway. The, the, the railways are renationalised, so rail is going to be a huge problem uh, that won't be easily solved. Although. I think the unions will, uh, particularly as left, will find a solution. But I mean, that would mean us having to wait another ten, perhaps months, um, before uh, just you know one strike a month, just to remind you that um, we can do this and add to the general misery. Mm. Um, buses. Uh, this is the big thing. We're going to give. We're going to take back control of the buses and give it to you, local areas. Buses are a huge problem. More people catch buses than any other form of public transport, and Labour says yes. Uh, they've been uh, absolutely is the case since 2010. The number of miles has reduced by 300 million by buses, and everyone's getting their uh, services cut. But. Again, it's kind of, yes, everything's going to be fine. Um, we're not going to tell you yet how that's going to be fine. There is no visionary strategy. There is no innovation going on. There's no rec recognition that actually, if you're in a rural area where loads of people have cars because the buses are so terrible and the more people who have cars, the worse the buses get, then you've got to think of something else. And they're very good at doing this in rural France. So, for example, they have organised hitchhiking. So um, I, I don't know if anybody else here hitchhikes. I do occasionally and um, find it generally very good. But um, I can understand a lot of people, particularly women, wouldn't want to hitchhike. So you have an app-based system in rural parts of France where, because you know that five cars a minute are going to be leaving this small French village to drive into the nearest town. So you just have an app which says, yeah, I'm a, a recognised hitchhiker. You're a recognised driver. Stand here beneath this sign and we don't have to have um, you know, run, run buses. Um, it works really well. And that's the sort of thing which you can actually do on a local basis, improve transport at very low cost to the exchequer. But um, Labour seems a very long way away from that. So can I ask you a question where I, I'm in danger of using the phrases red wall and levelling up? <laughs> um, we need a klaxon, don't we? Yeah, the little big <laughs> swear jar. Um, but bus services outside the big cities, not just r uh, rural areas, but towns, have been a problem for years. And they seem to become quite totemic politically. Um, that a lot of where people are just talking about, you know, out, what life is like outside the big cities, and they're always talking about sort of buses. Is that something that and Andy Burnham loves his buses? Is that something that Labour would be politically wise to do something about? Because that does seem to be the sort of thing that affects a lot of people's lives on a daily basis. Mm. I think buses fit quite nicely and almost symbolically into Labour's vision, which is not only um, levelling up, although I think levelling up as we know it might evolve into something else that kind of is about devolution and communities and social mobility. But I think it fits quite nicely in that, in rebuilding communities that have been left behind, re-energising them, injecting them with investment and business and making them become their own hubs. And that's where buses are really key because buses are very localised, aren't they? That you mm. get from one uh, little village into a town or, or whatever, you know, they're, they're much more kind of localised. And I think it would be a really um, symbolic thing for Labour to look at fixing the broken uh, bus services and giving back control to local authorities about um, 
bus services in their community because buses are not only a really key part of transport, which I think is often neglected by the kind of motorists and, and you know, in London and the big cities, but also they're, they're actually key to tackling loneliness, social exclusion for a lot of people getting on the bus is, you know, is part of their day. You know, your local people used to know their local bus driver and all that's kind of changed. It's also very good for the environment, obviously, to catch a bus. So it could be a really big part of their levelling up agenda. And I think it would be quite symbolic to show that Labour isn't just a Westminster government anymore. They care about the rest of the country and they care about the needs of the rest of the country. I have a particular bee in my bonnet about Eurostar at the moment. <laughs> so I, I like I like Eurostar. I want to use Eurostar. But every time I think about using Eurostar <laughs> and I go to the site and try to search for uh, a fare, I find that it is twice the price of flying, sometimes up to four or five times. Over. Now, I, I understand that there are issues around uh, capacity now post-Brexit and they can't get enough people uh, through, the, uh, through the gates fast enough. But this is, it just seems tragic that that something has become, you know, a frankly, something that is only available to the rich. This is monopoly pricing. Um, of course it is. Uh, the vast majority of people who need to travel between London and Paris and London and Brussels, and a smaller proportion to Amsterdam, will go on Eurostar because, frankly, it's mad going to Heathrow and then flying from there and all, all of that. And Eurostar was absolutely trashed during COVID more than I think almost any other travel company, which is saying quite a lot. Um, but what everybody needs is competition. Yes, there were huge problems um, that arose from Brexit. And my goodness, the amount of damage that Brexit did to travel. Um, part, of course, the Democratic vote to leave, but then the, the way that we were negotiated, the way that the government suddenly said, we're going to stop people coming in with identity cards. Hooray! That will be 300 million EU citizens who can't come here without realising that actually inbound tourism is about as close as you can get to free money. It's an absolutely miraculous thing, which means that uh, you've got jobs created, you've got amenities paid for, um, and, and, and it's brilliant. But we, we said, put up the big keep out signs and indeed um, uh, devastated the economy we've, of places like... Listen, Hayes. we've covered Brexit in previous episodes. Yes, sorry. This is red meat. This is, people, right. they love this. Okay, so, so therefore um, you have this ludicrous situation because the government was so keen for us to become third country nationals, that we have got uh, to have our passports stamped at St Pancras and there isn't room. Um, don't get me started on the entry-exit system. Perhaps we can talk about that another time. But that is going to devastate East Kent, where even the Conservative Council is predicting months of, of, of Operation Brock and traffic jams. So, leaving all that aside, um, the, the successive governments haven't realised that there is one part of transport in Britain which is phenomenally successful, which uh, works without any government interference, and that is aviation. We have absolutely the best, the safest, the highest va uh, value, the lowest cost aviation industry in the world, and we've got that just by allowing competition. And that's why I certainly wouldn't tonight go from here to St Pancras and catch a train to Paris at uh, short notice because I know I'd be paying £200. Um, I'd, I'd head to whichever airport has the cheapest fare, probably Luton tonight, and I'd pay half as much and it would be ridiculous and I'd get to Charles de Gaulle and I'd have to run around and everything else, but I'm going to do that to save 100 quid. 
competition is what is actually going to save everything. And that's quite a problem for Labour because, of course, you've got all this, oh, we're, we're taking this back from the private sector as opposed to let's have a look at what the private sector has done in aviation. Isn't this brilliant? Let's encourage new arrivals. Let's see if we can set up something which isn't quite Eurostar, but maybe it goes from Ebbsfleet, this um, place by the M25 in North Kent. Let's see if we can have a sort of stopping service which is going to take us to Paris and it'll be the budget, it'll be the Ryanair alternative. So that's what we need. We will get there sooner or later, but at the moment, I absolutely agree with you. Eurostar is doing what any sensible monopolistic provider would do, which is just extracting as much cash as it can. So to turn to the roads... <laughs> After the Uxbridge by-election, uh, also see previous episodes, um, Sunak tried to make the so-called war on motorists a thing. Now, obviously, uh, air pollution and climate change are reasons to reduce the number of car journeys. What is the most effective way of doing that? Like how, if you were, I'm pointing you Labour's transport star here, <laughs> um, prematurely, as I'm sure, I'm sure they will. Um, <laughs> you know, if you've got that idea of like, look, you know, you want to get more people on off the road and you want to get them onto public transport and for all these kind of, all these reasons, but you don't, you know, how do you do that perhaps in a mo more, most politically cunning way? Well, um, I don't think there's any room for cunning. It's very simple, simply tax. And the fuel price escalator, which has been removed effectively for years and years and years, um, you, you need to uh, tax people off the roads. So you I'm do afraid. need a war on motorists. Well, well, well you, you do, because you then um, can funnel, particularly if you ring fence that cash, you can put it into public transport. And by the way, you've got to be really thoughtful about public transport. Zoe was talking about how important the buses are. Yes, they are, but all too often, and I don't know how often you are in various parts of the UK on a bus, all too often I'm the only passenger on it. Mm, yeah. But that is perhaps a reflection of the fact that people have lost all faith in the resilience of buses as well. Mm. Um, so well, there's that vicious circle, isn't it, of the yeah. sort of bad service, fewer people use it, service gets worse, there's less justification for putting money into it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, sure. fewer, fewer people take it because you can't depend on it anymore. So, you know, you know, if you've got to wait three hours for a bus, you're not going to take it, right? Mm. I wonder if they will keep the £2 bus fare which has been really good. Do you think Labour will keep that? Uh, yeah, well, it's going up to £2.50 very soon, Damn. I think. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, that is actually a distortion, um, uh, which means that, for instance, if you're going from uh, Leeds to Scarborough, you could go on a taxpayer subsidised Transpennine Express train and pay £13. Or you could, if you've got another hour to spend, just catch the £2 bus. Um, and I'm not sure that, that moving people away from one state-subsidised form of transport, which is actually quite efficient in getting you there quite uh, timely, to another, which is, a uh, sorry to say, this smelly old diesel bus, is necessarily a good thing. And, and it is also one of these... Uh, things where actually people, I don't think, are averse to paying a reasonable fare if they think they're getting a good quality, reliable service. And yeah, you can keep, I mean, it's not a very particularly expensive thing to keep subsidising, so you could keep doing it. But um, I, I think there are many more important things to do with the money. So what is, to wrap up, what is the thing that you think that is 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 obvious for people, you know, in your line of work who are, who are following, you know, problems with the transport system that Labour are not talking about yet, that well, might not be vastly expensive and just seems like a, an easy win? 
Well, you, you first of all um, get on and, and bring back British Rail, which is at the current time called Great British Railways. The Tories have sort of had a look, oh, they're very half-heartedly doing that. But you remove it from, from, from Westminster. You just say, let's get uh, a Whitehall, in fact, Department of Transport. Let's just get people who know the railways to run the railways. And we are going to be absolutely merciless at cracking down on costs because... Yes, the the railway is losing uh, billions of pounds. Um, the subsidy has rocketed since COVID and the collapse of uh, rail revenues. But unless you get a, a handle on costs, uh, then you are just going to be in this spiral of decline, and things are going to get much worse. So railways is the the biggest subject, and 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 something which uh, they could do on day one, which is just say, we're not going to have civil servants telling. Um, uh, Trans Pennine Express, how many uh, trains they've got to run and, and you know, what sort of tea they've got to serve. We're just going to let that go to an organisation which is going to be a kind of virtuous 21st version, 21st century version of British Rail, if anybody remembers that. I do, because I'm. Um... I'm, so I'm, do I. It's okay, Dorian. So, so he yeah. probably doesn't. Oh, and, and then, but, but you also allow competition to thrive, and you bring in um, uh, competition on, on, on uh, as we've seen on the East Coast mainline, particularly, which actually delivers great value and gets more people travelling by train because uh, the rail companies have to compete. So therefore, people who are thinking of driving or flying are now catching trains because, well, they're they're cheap as chips. So that's the end of the show. Thanks to Roz. Thank you. Zoe. Thank you. And Simon. Thank you very much for having me. It's such a thrill actually to meet you all. <laughs> Bless you. Thanks for coming in. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our supporters. You could join them and get the podcast early and without ads plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon. And just want to say thank you to Alex Reese, who has been a producer and co-script writer on Ogre What Now and Romaniacs for more than four years, and he is off to pastures new. I will miss him. Thank you, Alex. Hello, and welcome to the Oh God, What Now universe to Lisa Graham, Brenda, QS, and Glenis Cameron. Big shout from me and thanks for your support to Helen Fullside, Jane, and Paul Wilcox. And thanks for me to brand new supporter John Atherton and returning backers Simon Duckworth and Raffo Bonacorsi. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Zoe Grunewald. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Chris Jones. Socials by Jess Harpin and Kieran Leslie. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. An audio production for the final time was by me, Alex Reese. Oh God, what now? Actually, you know what? Let's go back to the beginning. Romaniacs was presented by Roz Taylor with Nina Schick and Ian Dunt. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Dory Linsky with Roz Taylor and Alexandreou. By Naomi Smith with Minnie Raman and Ian Dunt with Hannah Fern, Rachel Cunliffe and Matt Green. 
Zoe Grunewald and Seth Tevo and Jerry Scott and Marie LeConte and oh god Ahisha Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers. January is when thoughts turn to holidays. In fact, the whole concept of Blue Monday, allegedly the most depressing day of the year, was cooked up by Sky Travel in a 2005 press release and is not real science. (laughs) Uh, But where to go when so many destinations are in the hands of oppressive governments? Dubai, for example, the Western Influencers Paradise, Qatar, where the last World Cup was held. I have quite a lot of red lines myself, um, but I don't know if that's normal or if I'm just being puritanical. So I want to know if the rest of the panel also have no-go countries when it comes to holidays. Uh, Zoe, have you ever blacklisted a country for a holiday? Um, Not for ethical reasons. Uh, Cost would be a big thing for me. Um, I'm also very irrationally afraid of bears. So I wouldn't go anywhere where there were bears. That's not irrational. That's very sensible. Yeah, but some people would love to see a bear. I don't want to be anywhere near a bear. They really scare me. I think they're beautiful, but no, irrationally afraid. So um, that is most of sort of Northern America, Russia, Canada... You know, that's out for me. Um, but So Canada, wonderful liberal democracy, but bears. But, but there's bears there, so... I've been no. a few times and I never saw a bear. I was kind of hoping to, but I never saw one. I was hitchhiking through Vancouver Island in Canada and we saw a bear crossing the road in front of us. It was very exciting, but um, it's a wonderful island, by the way, for hitchhiking because yeah. with no public transport to speak of, everybody picks you up. It's an amazing place. So, as a, you are not the typical traveller. You've done you've done rather more than the, the average person. Are there countries that, putting work aside, there are the countries that you wouldn't choose for a holiday because of uh, because of the political system there. Well, look, all travellers, and you are actually, Dorian, a complete outlier in having a high-minded approach to this because almost all travellers... Finger-wagging prig. Uh, <laughs> almost all travellers will just say, is it hot, is it cheap, um, I'm going. And, and of course, there's uh, lots of many, many problems. In particular, uh, yes, people go to the UAE, they go to Qatar, they don't think about the human rights of the, uh, the guest workers there. They don't think about the really quite serious attitude to uh, um, same-sex couples, even though, of course, Dubai has this kind of um, turning a blind eye approach. Um, th- for me, it's, it's, it is very difficult. I love travelling. I can build a case for saying travelling fosters international understanding and by going on holiday, you are automatically doing good things. To some extent, that's absolutely the case, particularly in terms of the transfer of wealth from richer countries to poorer countries. But you are, in some circumstances, also directly funding the government which is oppressing its people. The independent um, has had a boycott of against running any coverage, and this went on for a couple of decades, of Burma, Myanmar, um, while Aung San Suu Kyi was there. Mm. But of course, that was partly because she said, I wish to call a tourism boycott. And lots of people who respected her in the West thought, OK, we will go with that. And then, well, since then, of course, it's become the undiscovered um, Thailand. And uh, I personally still wouldn't go there the way things are at the moment. Otherwise, it's a pretty short list of places I wouldn't go. Russia at the moment, which mm. is actually for me, a sadness, I mean, on the scale of what's going on. Obviously, me being sad about not being able to go on holiday in Russia is utterly meaningless. But um, that, that, that if, you, if you have 
a country that is uh, th th behaving so appallingly, then that, that uh, uh, will deter me in the short term. And I suppose to turn that around, what is going to be absolutely crucial? That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a bit more, oh God, what now, every week without ads and a day early, then you can sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, oh God, what else, every Monday morning, tasty merchandise and advance offers for live events. Thanks for listening and see you next week.